take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be starting a, a new series, let me make sure I've got that turned on this morning, on the Ten Commandments, the law of God, uh, sometimes referred to as, as the moral law, and uh, we're going to do a few sermons uh, just to kind of look over what Scripture says in general about the law of God and how we should understand God's law. And, and then we'll begin to dive into each of the Ten Commandments here in a few weeks. Uh, let me just say this on your way out this morning. Let me encourage you. We've made up these bookmarks that have the Ten Commandments on there. Uh, and so pick up one of those. We're going to be encouraging you uh, to, to work on memorizing the Ten Commandments. I, I would say that we as Christians should know the Ten Commandments, shouldn't we? Uh, the law of God. Uh, and uh, I, I would really encourage you to, to memorize this entire passage uh, if you're able to. But, but at the very least, and th they're highlighted there, the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, so maybe you already know those and that won't be a task for you at all. Uh, but, but if not, I would encourage you to, to do that. So pick up one of those on the way out. And then also with it, there's a second thing. But wait, there's more. Um, we, we have a... Um, worship guide, a family worship guide. Uh, and so the idea behind this uh, is that this week we've got three days of material. Uh, there's just something that you personally could work your way through. There's a, a scripture, there's a catechism question, and then there's some discussion questions, or if it's just you uh, by yourself, you can read through them and try to try to answer them on your own. If you have a family, uh, I'd encourage you to sit down together and and work through these, especially with your, your children. So there, there is that. And each week, Lord willing, uh, we'll have a new one of those guides. It's just three days. We didn't do every single day because I wanted to set sort of a, a realistic goal for us there. And I know we're also starting tonight our community groups, and there's some work involved in that as well, so we don't want to overwhelm you. So pick up those two things uh, on your way out this morning. And... Uh, I want to ask that we would do this this morning. In, in Exodus chapter uh, 20, I'm going to read it, and, and then when we come to the commandments, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to ask that we read the commandments all together. So hopefully we can do that without butchering it. Uh, I, I don't always lead these things very well, so if, if we mess up, we'll do our best, right? Um, I'll pause and let you know when you start. But it's Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse number 1, and I'll begin reading. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now let's read verse 3 together. You shall have no other gods before me. And then verse 4, let's read it together. You shall not make for yourself a carved image and I'll read the remainder of it or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And now the third commandment in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In verse 8, let's read together. Remember the Sabbath day 
to keep it holy. And I'll read, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and that all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And now let's read verse 12 together. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. All right, so don't forget to get one of those on, on your way out and, and read that and work on memorizing those commandments as we go through this series. Well, let's begin this morning. And, and as we begin, we've just got to ask the question, how should we as Christians think about the law of God. When, when we think about it, now, if, you, if you're like me, one of the things that immediately you hear people say, when, when anytime the law comes up, it, people say, well, we as Christians, we're not under the law. And, and of course, the Bible does say that at various places, but, but understanding what that means, what does it mean that we're not under the law? And does that mean then that, that we have no obligation to obey God and, and so forth? So let, let me just begin this morning uh, with some introductory matters, and, and one of that is that we need to just avoid two errors, and you need to know that there, there are two main errors when it comes to thinking about the law of God. The first is what we might call legalism, and legalism is just the mindset that, that our obedience, that our keeping God's commandments in some way plays some role in our salvation the, the legalist is a person who thinks that when they stand before the Lord, they're going to enter into heaven, at least in part, based on the fact that they've kept God's law. But legalists fail to see the, the clear teaching of Scripture, and we're going to be diving into this more in, in the future. But, but Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of, law, of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. I mean, that one verse alone, although there's much, much more that could be said, but that one verse alone forever seals the, the fate of that idea that we could somehow enter into heaven or be saved by keeping God's law. He says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And of course, it isn't just those who uh, think that they're going to go to heaven based on keeping the law. But sometimes even we as Christians, we, we understand that we need to believe and trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. But then sometimes we can begin to fall back into a legalistic mindset, which is to say that somehow God blesses me because of my obedience to his command. That, that I kind of fall back into this mindset of earning and meriting things from God based on me doing what he commands me to do. But the Bible is clear that all of God's blessings, Ephesians 1, 3, all of God's blessings come to us through Christ because we're in Christ and none of God's blessings come to us on the foundational basis that, that we are keeping God's law. 
Everything that God gives to us in terms of blessings is because we are in Christ Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. If this is you this morning, I'll just start off with this. If this is you this morning, I pray that God would lead you away from trusting in your ability to keep his law in order to gain favor with him or in order to be even saved. I'm reminded of what Paul says in in Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, where he says that he put no confidence in his flesh. That's where we all ought to be this morning. You ought to have no confidence in your own ability to keep God's law in, in a way that would somehow earn God's favor or earn your salvation. And again, Paul said, uh, and, and he had a lot of, human, humanly speaking, a lot of righteousness to give up. But, but he said, I, I'm willing to lay all of that aside that I might gain Christ and, and ha- be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That's the kind of righteousness that you need this morning. A righteousness that is a gift. A righteousness that is given to you by grace and not a righteousness that is yours in, in, in that you have produced it. You, you see, that's the difference of the gospel. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the gospel. This isn't something I'm talking about that's like, you know, way up high on the level of, uh, of Christian maturity. This is the entryway into the Christian faith is just simply understanding this. I don't come to God with my own righteousness and say, God, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. So I should go to heaven. Look at what I've done. I should earn your blessings. We come strictly by grace. And when we believe in Christ, his righteousness is counted to us. It's given to us as a gift by his grace. And that's That's what we need. And so we need to avoid the error of legalism as I start this series this morning and and we're going to be in it the next few weeks. Uh, I I really do not want you listening to these sermons and thinking, yes, I need to do that. Yes, I need to do that so I can be right with God. I want to go to heaven, so I'm not going to lie. I want to go to heaven, so I'm not going to steal. If you have that mindset, you're getting it all wrong. No one is going to be justified based on keeping God's law you need to believe in christ and trust in him to save you but then the second error and this is where the second error comes in is what is termed and and i'm going to throw out maybe a few new terms for you this morning and i'll try to explain them and and they're pretty easy concepts but i think it's good for you to know the word the the second error is antinomianism the word namas is the greek word for law so Antinomianism is to be, strictly speaking, against the law. But this is the mindset that, that says, well, we're saved by the grace of God. We're saved by Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to worry about obeying God's commands. We, we really have little or no obligation to keep God's law. We're not under the law. And this is the way so many Christians live in our day and time. I'm saved by Jesus Christ and by his grace. And so I just live however I want to live and I'm still going to heaven. I prayed that prayer back then and I trusted in Jesus. So, so I'm forever good. I have no obligation to keep God's law. But listen, the Bible would, would very quickly disabuse us of of that idea. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 20. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven. But, he says, the one who does the will of my Father 
who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So people who reject the law of God don't belong to Christ. People who live a lawless life are not those who have truly believed in Jesus Christ and so we need, to, we need to recognize that this morning. When the saving grace of God floods an individual's life, it brings freedom from the penalty of sin, but it also brings freedom from the power of sin. It changes your life. We're saved by faith alone. Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. James teaches us that true saving faith always produces good works, and those good works, what are good works? They're when we obey God's commands. And so uh, we, we need to recognize that we cannot, we cannot have this mindset that I'm saved by grace, therefore I live however I want and, and everything will be good. So we need to avoid those two errors and then we need to understand two foundational truths. And, and these foundational truths are tied to what I've already been saying, but these, these two foundational truths are, are going to undergird this entire series. So I hope you'll get these this morning. I hope that they will make sense to you. I've got them written on the bulletin in, in the notes there. Uh, but, but these are the two foundational truths for how we as Christians should think about the law of God. So this is the first. The first foundational truth is that the law is God's universal and unchanging standard of righteousness. The law is God's universal and unchanging standard of righteousness. It's universal. That's what, that is, it's for all people, not just Jewish people. It, it is the standard to which God holds all people. And it's unchanging. No matter where we stand in time, uh, throughout human history, this is what God requires of all people for all time. The second foundational truth is this. We must, the, the law must be viewed through the lens of Jesus Christ. Or uh, another way of saying it is that we could say that the law must come to us in the hands of Christ. It is the law in the hands of Christ uh, that we obey. We need to understand this because apart from Christ, we, we don't truly obey the law of God. And, and because of that, the law will only condemn us. Again, if, we, if we're attempting to have a relationship with God based on our law keeping, the law will condemn us. By the works of the law, how many people will be justified? No one. No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we're going to be unpacking those two foundational truths over the coming weeks. And, and this morning, I really want to just focus in on, on that first one, which is that the law is God's universal, unchanging standard of righteousness. And I'm going to give you four reasons. And, and just so you know, this first reason is going to be the longest. And, and then we're going to just go through the, the next three very quickly. Uh, but, but we'll just jump right in here. The, the first reason I would say that the law is God's universal and unchanging standard is because it is an expression of God's unchanging righteous character. The moral law is an expression of God's unchanging righteous character. 
What we need to understand right away is that what we read here at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses was not the beginning of the law. Uh, we just read that, but, but that's not where the law began. We, we need to understand that God's moral law predates it goes way back before the covenant with Moses. When, when God met with the people, when he met with Moses there on Mount Sinai, he didn't just come up with these things and think, well, I got to give them some rules. So, so let me think about this and, and maybe I can come up with a few. No, these things are rooted actually in his very character. He, he's just expressing, this is what I expect of my creatures and of my people because this reflects who I am. And so, since it is a reflection of God's eternal, unchanging character, then His law does not change. God is a moral character, a moral being, rather. Uh, he is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And so, when God commands things, He's simply commanding these things that are in line with His holy, righteous character. So, let me give you a few examples. When, when God prescribes you shall not lie. Why does he do that? Well, well, he does it because God is truthful. God does not lie. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. And so what God is requiring of us is, is what he is in himself. He, he is the truth. He, and he speaks the truth. And so that's why he requires it of us. When God commanded that we not commit adultery, you shall not commit adultery. He did that because he himself is faithful. When he makes a covenant, when he makes a commitment to someone, he is faithful to that covenant commitment. And so when he commands that of us, it's simply an expression of his holy and righteous character. This is why uh, when when the Bible speaks of obedience to God's law, it, it can actually just be spoken of in terms of imitating him. So in Leviticus 19 in the law, God says, you shall be holy, Israel, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. When when we're obeying the commandments, when we're seeking to keep God's commandments, we're just imitating our holy and righteous God. The, the, the commandments are just that, uh, uh, an expression or a reflection of His holiness. And we need to understand that since God's character doesn't change, God does not change. He, he's immutable, unchangeable. Malachi 3.6 tells, tells us that. And so since God's character does not change, His commandments will never change. He commands what He commands because He is who he is, and since who he is does not change, neither do his commands. This, this means then that no matter where we stand throughout redemptive history, whether, whether you're talking about Adam or you're talking about the old covenant people under the law of Moses, or you're talking about new covenant believers, no matter where we stand throughout redemptive history, we can never treat the commands as if we have no obligation to obey them or as if they're simply a matter of indifference. If you are in a relationship with God, he he cares that you obey his commands and reflect his holy character. The, the fact that uh, the, the law is a reflection of his holy characters is why the law, the law can be spoken of in the ways that it is like Jared read this morning in Psalm 19. You did read Psalm 19, didn't you? 
Psalm 119. I was running behind here, putting things together at the last minute, but uh, Psalm 119 does it as well. But Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The rules of the Lord are true. You, you see, the psalmist extols the, the goodness of the law because the law is merely a reflection of God's moral character. And this is why the Apostle Paul and if you've read the New Testament, you know that, that Paul can say much about the law. Paul says, for instance, and we're going to talk more about it, that we're not under the law and, and so forth, but we're under grace. Paul says some things that can be can sound kind of negative about the law. He says that the law has a ministry of condemnation. Uh, and so some Christians read that and think Paul had a negative view of the law. But in, in Romans chapter 7, he says this, What shall we say? That the law is sin? Because it has a ministry of condemnation, should, should, is the law a bad thing? Well, he answers that question by no means. And he goes on to say in verse number 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So even the Apostle Paul, who, who wants us to think of, of the law through the lens of Christ or in the hands of Christ, and, and he wants us to understand that even the Apostle Paul says that the law is good. It is holy and righteous and good. And the reason it is, is because it's a reflection of the God who is holy and righteous and good. And so Sinclair Ferguson said, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but any view of the law, speaking about any view that a Christian would have, any view of the law that does not see it as holy, righteous, and good is a deficient view. So maybe you've kind of had a negative view about the law. Well, we're not under the law. The law is a ministry of condemnation. And so you, you can kind of develop a, a negative view. But any view that couldn't say with the psalmist that, that more to be desired are your commandments than, than gold, even much fine gold. If you can't say that with the psalmist, or if you can't say with the Apostle Paul that, that the law is holy and righteous and good, then you have a deficient view of God's law. So the question is then this morning, why, why do we as Christians, if you're saying that the law doesn't change as part of God's eternal holy character, why, why do we believe that some laws have been abrogated or, or have been canceled in a sense. And, and if you're a Christian very long and you've read the New Testament, you know what I'm talking about. There are certain laws like the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament or the food laws. There were certain foods that were clean and unclean. And we as Christians this morning, we don't, we don't observe those laws. There was the law regarding circumcision, and that's not required. Paul's very clear in the New Testament. That's not required of New Testament believers. So, so why, if, if the law is this based on God's eternal character, then, then why would we say that some laws have changed? And here's an important distinction. And here's another word that I'm going to give to you. And, it, and it's something that I hope that you can grasp the concept, even if you can't remember the, the term here. But, but some laws, we, we would call them positive laws. They are positive laws as opposed to moral laws. So in, in the Bible, in the Old Covenant, and in the New Covenant as well, there are some laws that are positive laws and some laws that are moral laws. Positive law is, is something that is not moral in nature. It, it is something that is specially commanded beyond the moral requirements. Now, the Ten Commandments are, are moral commandments. 
their moral law, but God gave laws like circumcision and, and so forth uh, that are positive. They're not moral in nature. You think about even us as New Covenant believers. We have some positive laws, don't we? We observe the Lord's table. Why do we do that? Because Jesus commanded us to, to observe this, this ritual. We practice baptism. That's a positive command. That's not a moral issue. It's, it's not like a right or wrong kind of issue. This is something we do because God has commanded it. And he said, I want you to observe this. I, I want you to do it. We sometimes as parents have positive laws, don't we? We have moral laws like your children. Hopefully you, you don't allow them to lie or steal or things like that. But sometimes you give them additional laws that aren't really moral, but they still need to keep them right like, for instance, you might tell your children, when you come in the house, you have to take off your shoes. M maybe you've got carpet. Is that, is that a moral issue? Is that like a right or wrong kind of, of issue? No, it's just your preference. It's, it's something you're commanding your children to do. You're saying, when you come in the house, I want you to take your shoes off. I don't want the carpet to get dirty or whatever else your, your reason is. You're simply saying, do this because I am your parent. And, and so there are, so it is with God. There are certain things that He commands us to do that are not moral issues, but, but He's simply saying, do this because I'm God and I want you to obey me. And so again, baptism is one of those things. When a person makes a profession of faith, Jesus has commanded us to follow Him in baptism or to observe the Lord's table. When we go back to the garden uh, with Adam and Eve, there's a positive law, isn't there? Don't eat this fruit. Is that a moral issue, like a right, you know, black and white? No, God could have commanded them anything. But he said, this is one thing I want you to do. And so with wherever we are in, in history, God has given certain more or positive commands. Now, some would object, well, isn't it arbitrary that you can label some things as sort of positive laws and, and some things as moral? And, and then you can say, well, we don't observe that anymore. Uh, but but that really is not a, a it's kind of a disingenuous argument, honestly, because the Bible itself recognizes this category of positive laws. So Jesus himself, as well as the other other New Testament writers, helped distinguish between things that were positive that, that God just commanded and, and things that were of a moral nature. So in Matthew 23, 23, he says to the scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and, and have neglected, listen to these words, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. Do you see how Jesus is distinguishing here? Hey, there's this, there's this command by God that he wanted you to give a tenth of, of all of your produce and all of these things, and, and you all are doing that. And that's a positive command, something that, that you do simply because God commanded it. But, but you're really particular about doing that. But then when it comes to practicing justice and mercy, these weightier matters of the law, why are they weightier? Because they're of a moral nature. This is a positive. This is something God said, do it because I'm God and I'm commanding you to do it. This is do this because it is, it is objectively right and wrong. It's rooted. Justice and mercy are rooted in the very character of God. And so these things never change. These can change. So here Jesus was setting up a grid through which we can observe that some laws are weightier or have more importance. And the weightier matters 
are matters that have to do with morality. And this is why Jesus in Mark 7, 19 could declare all foods to be clean. There were certain food regulations that were positive commands in the Old Testament. And when Jesus came, he said, I'm starting a new covenant. There's a new work that I'm doing. And those regulations about food, you're not under them anymore. And so he abrogated or canceled those out. This distinction really is self-evident. Again, if somebody wants to kind of say, well, that seems... Uh, like you're just picking and choosing there and, and randomly identifying some things as positive and some as moral. And, and yet, uh, I think it's very clear that, that really it's self-evident. The distinction between the two is self-evident. God has ingrained his moral law within us so that it's easy for us to identify what's really of a moral nature and, and what is a positive law, something that, that could change. Since some laws are positive laws, things that God specially requires that are not of a moral nature, God is free to no longer require them. Again, you could do this illustration with your children. So, so maybe there was a time when you required them to take off their shoes. But, but maybe they grow up. Maybe they're more mature and they know that they need to wipe their feet first. Or, or maybe in your house you just went from carpet to hardwood floors. And you're like, just forget it. You can, you can keep your shoes on. I'm tired of looking for shoes. You can change that law. But you would never change, would you? You would never say, oh, it's okay for you now to steal your neighbor's car. Yeah, go ahead, take it. Take it for a joyride. That's okay. We would never change that kind of a moral law that we give to our children. But, but we abrogate or cancel positive laws all the time. It's okay, kids. You can, you can wear your shoes in the house. And so it is with God. Well, what we need to understand here, and I know I'm giving you a lot of information, but, but if you don't have these things, this foundation, it's going to be hard for us to really consider the law of God. That, that positive laws, these special requirements that God gives, they're tied to certain covenants. So when God created, he had a relationship with Adam and Eve, and he said, don't eat of this tree. But they sinned and they rebelled, and, and so that commandment is over with now. There, there's no certain trees that we're not supposed to eat of. When we come to the, to the old covenant with Moses, God gave them these moral commands that don't change, but he gave them all kinds of other commands that, that do change. But they were tied to that specific covenant. To that specific, a covenant is just simply like an agreement but between two parties. And, and that's the way we need to think about it. There are certain stipulations that are part of this agreement and once that agreement is done, once that agreement is fulfilled and, and God enters into a new covenant or a new relationship, God is free to, to give new stipulations. And that's why certain laws can change. Again, let me give you an illustration and, and maybe this will, will help you. If you hire a, a builder to, to build a house, you sign a contract with them, right? There's an agreement and, and there are specific stipulations in in that contract that they're required by the virtue of the fact that they've entered into this agreement to this relationship with you but once the once the builder has completed all of those requirements and and once that that relationship or once that contract is fulfilled then all of those stipulations they're no longer in force right you don't show up at their house after the the thing. Hey, why aren't you at my house working, helping me paint my wall? No, that wasn't part of the contract anymore. I, I built the house. It's complete. I have no obligation to, to follow any of these other stipulations. And, and so it is 
with God. He's entered into certain relationships with people and groups of people throughout history. And in those particular relationships, he has given them specific, sometimes positive laws, uh, special things that he's required of them. But once that covenant changes and he enters into a new relationship with other people, he's allowed to abrogate or cancel off those positive commands and, and issue new positive commands. But one thing that doesn't change in any of those relationships is God's moral law. It always stays the same. We need to understand that in Jesus Christ, the old covenant was fulfilled. That old covenant relationship with all the food laws and all of the sacrifices and all of those things, it was completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians, all of God's promises find their yes and amen in him. They, they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus says as well in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. There's this agreement that you had with God, this, this covenant, this relationship. Jesus said, I didn't come to just throw that out the window. He said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but listen to this. I've come to fulfill them. All of God's obligations that he obligated himself to the people of Israel. Jesus said, I'm the one that's going to fulfill all of those things. I didn't come to abolish or get rid of or annul the law. I came to fulfill the law. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus accomplished. He fulfilled every obligation that God had to the old covenant people. When Jesus completed all the terms of the old covenant, he inaugurated a new relationship. We have it, right? The New Testament, the new covenant. We're part of a new relationship, a new covenant with God. And since the old covenant is fulfilled, he's free to cancel out any of those old laws that he wanted to, that were not moral, the positive laws. And he did that. He canceled the food laws and circumcision and so forth. And since he established a new covenant, he is free to include new stipulations, new positive laws like, like baptism and the Lord's Supper or the Great Commission. Those are, all, those are all specific commands that we have been given as new covenant believers that are not moral issues. That they are issues of things that God has commanded us, rituals and, and so forth. And so... Since God's, God's moral law is a reflection of His moral character, any covenant that He established is going to call for obedience in, that, in those areas. So some laws change, those positive laws. Some laws remain the same, these moral commandments. God is never going to say, you know, we're in a new covenant. You all can lie if you want. That's, it's okay with me. I've, I've kind of changed who I am, and I'm okay with lying in certain situations or, or stealing or committing adultery or any kind of sexual immorality. God, God is not going to change on those issues. God's moral law is unchanging because God is unchanging and his moral law is simply a reflection of his moral character. I spent a long time on that, but, but 
it, maybe you don't encounter these things, but, but this is a big issue that's brought up to Christians a lot for, for people, especially people p pushing new ideas about sexuality. They'd say, well, you, you all hold to this area of sexuality and, and yet you change all kinds of other laws like these food laws. You all eat pork. God said that that wasn't allowed and now you eat that. So why is it that that can change and this one can't change? Well, I hope you can understand that and would be able to answer that a little more easily now. But let me tell, give you a couple more reasons why God's law doesn't change. And I told you that we would move through these quickly. The, the second reason is this. The law is universal and unchanging because it's written on the hearts of all humanity. So in Romans 2, verses 12 through 15, Paul says, For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So here the Apostle Paul is saying that for all of humanity, he's showing us in Romans 2 that, that we're all condemned. And, and the thought would be, well, what about those who didn't have the Old Testament law? How would they be condemned? And Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 2, they're condemned because God has written his law on their hearts. They know the law of God. And we, we suppress that and, and, and we don't listen to the law of God within us. And it's distorted because of our sinful nature. But we need to understand that the law of God is written on every human heart. And you just look at your children and you can know this, right? I mean, we do have to teach and train our children. We have to reinforce things. But, but your children have a conscience. They know when they disobey that it's wrong. And they feel guilty about it. Why do they, why do they feel guilty? Because God's law is written on their heart. When they go to the store and they steal something, why, why is it that they try to avoid you or they, they take the cookie out of the cookie jar? The, you know, that seems to be always the illustration we use. But, but why do they feel guilty about it? Why do they run and hide away? B because God's law is written on their heart and their conscience is convicting them. All humanity has God's law written on our heart. This is why you can go to any any culture, practically, at any point in history, and things like lying and stealing and murder are always going to be universally condemned. I mean, I mean, there are a few minor examples throughout human history that we could point to as, as sort of outliers that, that, would, that wouldn't be the case. But most cultures, why is that? Because we're created in the image of God and we all have the law of God written on our hearts. And so if God's law has been written on our hearts, we need to understand that it must be his universal and unchanging standard. Thirdly, the law is universal and unchanging because it, because it is the standard by which all humanity will be held accountable. You're going to be held accountable by God. And what's the standard that he's going to hold you to? The standard is his law. God defines sin as as lawlessness and first john 3 4 through 6 everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness so even in just defining what is right and wrong what is sin before god how do we know what sin is 
Is it just what your preference is or what my preference is? That's what our culture wants to do. They want to be able to redefine sin in their own ways. But sin is defined as the breaking of God's law. And on Judgment Day, our lives are going to be evaluated by the law of God. Whenever we see lists in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, of, of people who will not enter into the kingdom of heaven, it, it's things like those who are idolaters and adulterers and sexually immor- immoral people and, and liars and, and so forth, greedy. Well, when you look at all those, all of those are people who, who break the law of God. So the law of God is the standard by which we will be held accountable. That's why the law doesn't change. It it doesn't change because it's a reflection of God's moral character. It it doesn't change uh, because it's it's written on every human heart. And it does not change because it is the standard by which you and I will be held accountable on the great judgment day. Fourthly and finally, the law is universal and unchanging because it continues to define God's baseline expectations even for us as believers. I read 1 John 3 earlier. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And then verse 5, listen to this. You know He appeared in order to take away sin, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Well, what is sin? He just said sin is lawlessness. So even for us as believers... We are those who have have turned away from sin. We are those who have turned away from lawlessness. So the moral law continues to be the baseline standard for our lives. In fact, the Apostle John says in, in 1 John 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God. How do we know that we love God? That we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome to us. So even for us as believers in the new covenant, the law of God continues to be a standard that guides our lives. That's why we're looking at it here on Sunday morning. That's that's why we're going through this series because we need to understand the world is changing all around us and there's all kinds of different definitions of morality and right and wrong, but you need to know that God's standard does not change. It remains the same. It's the same standard that He wrote on Adam and Eve's heart. It's the same standard that He gave to Moses on Mount Sinai and it's the same standard that you and I have this morning. So we're going to look in the upcoming weeks at the law of God. And we're going to see how we need to approach the law in the hands of Christ or through the lens of Christ. But we just need to begin here this morning to know that this is God's unchanging standard. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have revealed your law to us, that you've written it on our hearts and and then you've reinforced that by, by writing it in your word so that we can read it and reflect upon it. God, I pray for us as we go through this series that you would give us wisdom to to understand how we approach the law of God. I, I pray for each person here that as we contemplate and as we think about the law, that they would be driven to to see their need of Christ. Lord, perhaps if there's one here uh, even this morning uh, who does not know you, who has not believed in Jesus Christ, we, we pray, Lord, that this consideration of the law would lead them to to flee to Christ and to put their hope and their trust in Him. 
God, we, we pray for your blessing in this, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.